welcome to episode 14 of Dano Says So. Today's episode has been impeded upon by current events and is going to have me going in an interesting direction to start things off. But before that, I guess I should let you guys know, today's guest is Mark Rainey, somebody I've known for about a dozen years and who I've operated in the same circles as most of my life. Mark is the owner of TKO Records Record Label and of Cascade Record Pressing Plant in the Pacific Northwest. Um, it's an interesting story. It's a long story. It involves a lot of different cities and a lot of different times in the evolution of this music. Mark Rainey, thanks for doing this. Thanks, Dan. Pleasure to be here. Outstanding. So when you and I were getting ready to do the interview, we would have these texts going back and forth. We'd be like, you know, man, I may need to reschedule. We're in the evacuation path. We're <laughs> basically, I'm living in the apocalypse. Can you tell us about the last week or so? Oh, yeah. It's, it's been interesting. Um, I mean, just to dispel any any hysteria, we've never been in danger of burning up here. Where, where, the, where the plant is, and I'll oh, go ahead. For non-West Coast folks, give give people an idea of exactly where you're at. I'm so, so, I'm, so I'm I'm talking to you from uh, Milwaukee, Oregon, which is about ten miles south of Portland. Okay. Um, and where I am, and then where I live, uh, we're protected on in four directions by rivers. So the, the likelihood of the fire actually jumping the rivers and getting to where I've been uh, was, was pretty low. But a lot of people, uh, you know, further south of us and other parts of the state have not been so lucky. It's been, you know, an unprecedented amount of damage. Um, but for us, really, it's just been a matter of, uh, you know, monitoring things and then, and then uh, keeping an eye on the air quality, which is right now wretched. I think we're... Yeah. The, yeah, the news report I just heard was saying that we are uh, number one in, in of any city, large metropolitan city in the world, uh, poor air quality. So lucky um, you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I worked. I worked. I, I don't want to jump ahead in subject matter, but I mean, you remember I worked at Erica for a little while. Um, yeah, I remember I, you saying something about that. Yeah, yeah. I remember how hot a pressing plant could be. Were you operating at all during the fires? Um, we shut down operations uh, last Wednesday, so um, so we had about yeah we had about a half a day of trying to run while uh, you know the air quality was worsening, and it just got to the point where every, everybody out on the floor was like, forget it, man, this we can't do this. I can't, and, uh, I can't imagine doing it. Yeah, I mean it's it's you know in the in the warmer months, I mean you know we operate a full like I'm sure Erica does a full steam plant, so we've got a boiler and you know in the back room, which is great in the wintertime, but mm -hmm. um, you know, and you know, in August it can get kind of brutal. Um, so, to put this kind of toxic air quality on top of that, I mean, for, forget it. It's not. It's it's not a viable working environment. You know. So you're so, living in your work situation. Were you literally in a situation where you could see and were very familiar with the areas exactly where the fire were was, and in relation to where you know everywhere that you're operating. I mean, were, were familiar areas burning to the ground? I mean, I know that I know that it at its worst it got about twelve miles to the south of us. Okay. And um you know, it that it was starting to go around cities where we know, you know, we know people who live in those areas. But um outside of that, I mean I've been I've been in Oregon for five years. I love it here, but admittedly, I've been pretty locked in uh, you know, with getting this business established. Uh Mm -hmm. You know, I haven't ever had a chance to properly, uh, you know, visit the whole state. So, um, so you know, other than a quite a while and you're still not assimilated, huh? We're, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm assimilated to Portland, but I mean, you know, yeah. much like, like, you know, Texas, I mean, Portland is very different from the rest of Oregon. Uh, you know, yeah. it's, got, it's got like an Austin, an Austin, Texas type of situation where you've got, you know, a couple different cultures going on. 
I haven't um, been there. I haven't been there since the '90s, and I remember that being true then. Yeah, very much so. Um, not to say that I don't like the you know the areas outside of Portland. I mean, it's you know some of it's got a really kind of a cool sort of the kind of frontier vibe you get in co- places like Colorado. You know, um, well, sir, but, but there's also some problematic. Frontier. Say it again. You're rocking a frontier look, so that'll no. work. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. This is uh, you know I get I get a lot of comments about my appearance from people who haven't seen me in a while, and uh, you know I explained to them this all came from punk rock. Dad was not scaring the teenage boys that were coming by interested in my daughters, but <laughs> Manson Dad, see punk rock Dad got called dude, Manson Dad gets called sir. So people, I, people who don't know you don't realize. I mean I'm six one and you're considerably bigger than I am. I think any model of a Mark Rainey dad would probably scare kids more than you realize. Yeah, I don't know. I I I wanted to make sure I had control of the situation. So you know, we had we we had this Manson dad look, and then when I got up here, had to clean it up a little bit because Manson dad also can't get uh, bank loans apparently. So uh, <laughs> so I had to, you know I had to clean up for a little bit, but uh, yeah yeah no it's kind of you know kind of what I'm into now. Yeah. In my page of Sharpie notes here, I have absolutely nothing written down about Manson dad. Manson dad. <laughs> why don't, and with that said, why don't you and I get organized? Because we could BS each other for quite a while at everybody else's sure. expense. No, for um, sure. You've lived in a lot of hotbeds of hardcore and punk rock in the country. Um, with things really starting to pick up for you operationally when you landed out West, but could you kind of give listeners a rundown? Of TKO? No, of your geographic just, history real quick. Oh, just yeah. And then, yeah, let's jump into TKO as you land in its birthplace. Gotcha. Um, well, I, uh, I mean, if see how far back you want to go. But I, I went to high school in Central Virginia, and then um, after a few false starts, uh, ended up uh, attempting college in Boston uh, yeah. in, the, in the early '90s. And um, you know, I, I, you know, grew up in this punk thing since I was 13 or whatever. So I, you know, I was upon arriving in Boston. I mean, I was aware of the legacy there and got, you know, got plugged into what was going on there at the time. Uh, you know, ended up working. Uh, shifts uh, security shifts at the rat you know so that that kind of gave me a uh positioned me to observe what was going on in the music scene there pretty well for that time um and then uh yeah personal reasons i ended up out in san francisco Mm -hmm. and uh i i'd had the idea to start a a record label in boston but um you know it's just one of those things that didn't it didn't work out and there i guess i was uh i wasn't grounded enough and focused enough to really go after it and uh, arriving in San Francisco, it was sort of, for me anyway, the perfect uh, confluence of, you know, all, all these different factors. Why don't you share some detail on that? Well, sure, yeah. I mean, I, I was, we're talking, so, yeah, still mid-90s, uh, so 95, 96, I got out there, and, you know, there is, you know, it's, it's always had stuff going on out there. I mean, it's sure it waxes and wanes, but, you know, like L.A., like New York, like the centers, there's always something happening there you know and I just happened to arrive you know right around the time you know it was in the wake of you know punk breaking mainstream and of course you know there was a big boom that followed that with labels and bands and et cetera et cetera but there was also you know within that some you know a couple points you could point to as sort of pushback against the the mainstreaming and the commercialization And, and uh you know one of the forms that took was this sort of, uh, I don't know, it was, a, it was sort of like a return to uh, traditionalist idea of influences. Um, I think best 
best exhibited by a band like the Swinging Utters, for example, you know. And so sort of, you know, so in the Bay Area, in the wake of the Utters and Rancid, you had, uh, you know, you had, for the lack of a better term, what got called uh, the West Coast street punk scene. Which, which I have made fun of, no end, despite the, oh, fact, for sure. no, despite the fact that you, you command a ton of my respect. I love poking at the lingo. Sure, sure. Well, you know, I mean, that's that's shorthand for, I mean, street punk is is one of the terms that got used before oi got coined in, in the UK in the early 80s. It so that was sort of, it might be more dignified than oi. Yeah, you know, I just, I think it was maybe, you know, for people who weren't necessarily, you know, shackled to the whole baggage of the scan scene, but liked music from that era, it was, you know, kind of a safe or safer way to describe it. You know? um, <laughs> for better or for worse. Um, that was but, the, uh, that, that was as effectively as I've ever heard it explained. So, if for nothing else, it kicked me. In the <laughs> well, you know, I mean, if you you know you ask somebody on the new, you know from the East Coast, though, it's got a totally it's a totally different set of baggage that comes with it. It's it's okay. you know maybe a little bit more uh, image heavy uh, with right. uh, you know the like the band like the Casualties, like like you know extreme haircuts, full on right. battle jackets, you know all that stuff, which I think is cool too. You know, but yeah. um you know, you definitely had sort of different, different uses of the term. Um, okay, so that's going on in pushback in reaction to sort of the 92, 94 punk done broke. Sure, you know, and you know, you want to, you know, you want to, we were looking for something that was like, well, we're not, you know, necessarily like the, 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 the lookout or fat, you know, more pop leaning stuff. It's not rip off records, garage hipsters, which again, I'm not knocking any of that stuff. I like, I like stuff from all those scenes, but, uh, you know, you want to sort of assert, we wanted to assert our identity, assert our, our, our pocket of the scene and what we were doing. And that's, you know, that's kind of what we ended up hanging our hat on. Um, I don't know whether, whether, whether you avoid past associations or whether, whether things invariably, there's always interesting politics and things, but it, does my memory serve me right that you worked at Mortem? Uh, I, I didn't work at Mordam. I, I worked at um, briefly at uh, Epicenter, but um, so but that TK, would be, so TKO that would be was distributed by Mordam. I'm sorry, I shouldn't speak over you. Go ahead. I was going to say, but TKO was uh, distributed by Mordam, so I worked definitely worked with Mordam. I did remember you and I being able to converse pretty fluently about, you know, having Ruth Schwartz and Tommy Strange type stories and things like that. I think that's where that memory is coming from. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. No, great. And a lot, a lot, I mean, there's a lot of great folks that work there and, you know, a lot of, a lot of funny stories. Um, and it's, it's a time I look back on uh, fondly. And it's funny, uh, Ruth kind of prophesized this um, in, in talking about uh, labels that ended up, you know, ended up leaving for whatever reason. And I, you know, I, that TKO actually ended up leaving, uh, you know, before the whole, uh, Mordam sale and 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 okay. crash, but um, Mordam definitely did serve to shield labels like us from the the cold hard realities of the music business. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they very much uh, were kind of babysitting us, and um, it's kind of one of those things where I, you know, I think myself and probably a lot of other labels, we didn't realize how good we had it until uh, interesting we weren't work, working with them anymore. Well, so, so yeah. So you've been doing, you've been doing the label, roughly twenty five years. Just about, yeah, yeah. That's a lot of space for evolution. What would you say the most? I mean, can you break it down into eras, or can you talk about sort of sea changes that really made you it had to affect your business model or your plan of attack? Oh, for sure. How much time do you have? I mean, it's uh... <laughs> you thirty minutes, but it's not a hard yeah. fast rule. You know. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, as far as, I mean, the big, yeah, the big, C, I mean, well, obviously, 
uh, as I, you know, as I touched on before, uh, that, that whole, uh, the punk break of the 90, I guess like 93, 94, around there. I mean, that, that created um, in the underground uh, the, the interest and all these new people, new fans coming to this kind of music that, you know, it allowed for this whole cottage industry of, of independent labels. And, uh, you know, we, we certainly benefited from that and being and, and benefited from being in the same town and able to connect with, uh, you know, one of the premier uh, respectable, legitimately underground distros, which, mm-hmm. you know, Mordem was. And, um, you know, it, it, it uh, you know, we, TKO benefited incredibly from, uh, from that networking. Um, I mean, past that, I mean, I mean, you know, my, uh, my personal life's been, you know, obviously interwoven to the, the, the course that the label's taken. So, um, you know, after becoming a new father, a uh, couple years in, uh, my wife and I picked up and moved back to Richmond, Virginia, which is, you know, my home state okay. and, uh, look, you know, looking for a change of pace and, and, uh, you know, wanting things to, you know, maybe looking, looking, looking for a little bit more of a, a calmer, less immediately urban environment, you know, um, if nothing else, the population density are two completely different animals, the Bay Area or the city. Yeah, I mean, I can remember like cr- crossing, uh, I mean, this is kind of telling to myself, uh, you know, some of my, my knucklehead tendencies, but cr- crossing the street with a stroller and, you know, trying to kick the cars that were <laughs> go- going through the crosswalk while, while I was. And I was like, this, is, this isn't a good look. I, I, can't, I can't be starting with people when I'm pushing a stroller. This is ridiculous, you know. For all of the idealism and all of the beauty and all of the things that I really, really look back on and worship about the Bay Area in the 90s, um, I, I dated someone who lived in the Mission, who lived in the old Army Street projects, which are no longer there anymore. But, uh-huh. um, it's the only time in my life that Orange County boy used to carry a knuckle knife in his jacket. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, yeah. There's just busy big cities that one in the morning are different animals than anything else, you know. Yeah, there's a lot going I on. I, mean, a, I can understand a parent leaving the big city is, I guess, what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, and you couple that with, I mean, you know, TKO had kind of run the, I guess you could call the typical cycle of a local tastemaker label, which okay. is, you can usually count on four years, which is, you know, right. long enough time for the bar, the bar crowd to kind of get in, be into it for a few years, and then people start to cycle out. You know, and again, this is a, this is a, a, a very much a Gen X timeline that I'm talking about. You know, this, 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 okay. this is pre millennial, but um, you know, we we did our four years. We you know the scene got together. We started to have regular shows. We you know we built up a local audience, and then you know life started happening to to people. So okay. it was it was already starting to kind of spread out. So um, I I spread out to Richmond, Virginia. Um, okay. we were only there a couple years. Uh. I was I was there just a little bit before the whole No Way Records uh, hardcore revival scene kicked off in full, okay. so I wasn't there to benefit that. But I did I did get to know some of the people who were involved with that later. But uh, two years later, we were back in California, um, and this time we landed in Huntington Beach. Uh, and uh, one of the reasons that we picked Orange County was that at the time there was a, a, a pretty good concentration of bands I was working with, and I was sort of looking for a, another base that had that local connection that we had really kind of lost in Richmond. You know, um, and you, you owned you owned the store in Fountain Valley, which is essentially essentially is Huntington Beach when you and I met. Right. Yeah. So the story of the store opened. Uh, at, I did that around the tenth anniversary of the label. Um, and yeah, if you want to talk about sort of changes in the industry, I mean that that was the time when 
you know, the CD was bottoming out. Uh, the chain stores were going away. I mean, the whole the whole model that we relied on through the '90s was just out the window. It was gone. Yeah. Okay. You, you, didn't, you didn't have Virgin to sell to, sell to anymore. You didn't have Tower. You, you didn't have the, the chain stores that uh, you know were trying to carry everything under the sun, um, sort of supporting all the other efforts like the bands that weren't selling so well, the production of vinyl, et cetera, et cetera. When you took that away. Was at one point was CD a big part of, of, of what you were manufacturing? I mean. Oh, oh, very much so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, because I'm probably I'm 80, probably 80%. Okay. Good. Well, no, I always, I always, I always have been, but, but, um, and, uh, but I mean, in the beginning, vinyl was really sort of a break even operation that we were allowed to, it was a luxury afforded to us by the selling of the CDs. Okay. Um, and then, you know, come, you know, 2000, 2000, 2007, 2008, I mean, that wasn't necessarily the case anymore. And, um, I, you know, I got, I, I can't remember if we discussed this before, but I, I got the idea to open the store for, for two reasons. Simply one, I was seeing all the sort of the local stores going away. Um, and yet there i was still seeing a demand i mean we had you know our tko in uh used to have just a, a warehouse space in costa mesa no signage no no street profile nothing you know, nothing of the sort and um i remember one christmas we had a, just a rash of people wandering into our office hoping we were a record store because they were just looking to buy you know frank sinatra christmas yeah records. yeah a tko tile out front or no not even I mean, they were just—they were finding us on the internet, finding our address, and and just, you know, knocking on this unlisted this door with just a just a street number on it, you know, no no signage whatsoever, okay. hoping we were a record store. And so, you know, between that and you know us getting new landlords and our rent getting increasingly closer and closer to actual retail, mm-hmm. you know, why don't why don't we just open a store? I mean, we're about to have to pay retail price anyway. So, um, that you know, that's what led me to. Uh, you know, to, to, to go on that venture. And, um, you know, the way I put it, I guess the, the long story short is that TKO was a label that opened a store, but very quickly we became a store that happened to have a record. I remember, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, the label essentially ran out of the back, ran behind the divider that was about midway deep in the store. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, but, it, but I mean, you know, more and more the, the retail operation really kind of, help you know ma- make up the cash flow we'd lost from you know from cds taken so um and you know uh, and from there it was sort of a period of regrouping and uh you know eventually uh you know I, w- I was able to shift back to a vinyl only uh you know vinyl focused operation um how, how scary how deadly or maybe not so because that's an outside perception of a guy who could borderline fictionally say he's had a record label from time to time but obviously it is not what I do in the sense that it is what you do. Uh, but how dangerous was digital? And when suddenly you didn't have to hold a piece of physical media? I mean, I think the danger was less so for, for a label like us because, you know, it's a, it's a specialty thing. It's we're, we're selling to music enthusiasts. I mean, I know, I know for the majors it was completely deadly because, you know, you, looking back at that, I mean – you know, it, it was the perfect storm. I mean, you had, um, you know, the economy tanking. So the the music buying demographic all of a sudden didn't have uh, all that disposable income to, to spend buying, $17 on a CD or whatever, you know. That's around, um, the, that's around the time you and I met. 
Yeah. Right, right. I mean, so that was going on. Um, and then at the same time, there, this the file sharing technology, because it was originally ignored by the retailers and, and the major labels, you know, it developed independently. Right. And so all of a sudden it became this mechanism where like, hey, you, you know, you lost your job or you're not making as much money. No problem. You can still get new music. You can just get it online. Now. Well, I want to have kind of a jump ahead question that you just inspired. Sure. So in the here and now, you being a vinyl exclusive label, or, you know, being a vinyl focus label, yeah. do you not release digital versions of TKO stuff that comes out now? And if, if so, is that in order to drive or necessitate vinyl sales, or is that not even a, a necessary consideration? Um, yeah, I don't touch digital at all anymore. Okay. Um, in, in some cases, uh, you know, because of the way I do deals now, everything's a licensing deal. So, mm -hmm. you know, the understanding I have with the bands is that, you know, I'll, I'll do vinyl, but downloads, CDs, all that's your territory. Um, and, you know, some of them are pretty diligent about self-releasing it or they've partnered with labels that will, will take care of that for them, mm -hmm. you know, and I'll, and I'll certainly facilitate with, you know, sharing, uh, you know, music and artwork and stuff to help that along. But um, that's really something I don't, I don't touch anymore. Uh, one is I'm just happy to be done with it. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not how I listen to music. It's right. just not my preferred format. So, you know, I'm, I'm happy to just not even have to bother with it anymore. Manson um, dad don't stream. Yeah, right. No, not at all. But, um, you know, at the same time too, now that I'm, you know, I'm, I've got this, uh, this pressing plant, in the works too um i do a lot of cross branding there like all the tko releases all same you know manufactured and distributed by cascade record pressing put the logo on there you know so it's, it's an, an opportunity there there's an obvious pivot there and before we get there it sounds like we correct me if i'm wrong we're, we're, we're probably getting close to where we can sort of talk about cascade but you mentioned that everything is a licensing deal now you traffic primarily in reissues these days right mostly yeah yeah okay how did that, what, what, what drove you to that? I mean, I understand the safety in it, but I also know, I also know, I mean, I know your library and I know that you release a lot of stuff you just love, you know, the poison, the poison idea with what might as well be a picture of you in the center over your shoulder, yeah. that ain't accidental. Hmm. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, it's, it's a combination of, of, uh, of things that pushed me in that direction. Um, one was when there was that whole sea change with the the CD slash touring model kind of going away. Um, I, you know, I I've always tried to do the best job I could with the resources we have, and I was starting to question my ability to handle a certain scope of responsibilities under under the uh, the title of record label. Okay. And um, I'll tell you, that's not an obligation every label feels, so good for you. Well, it's, you know, it just sort of seemed like we were, you know, after a few years of just sort of trying the same old thing and not having it work and, and just sort of being, uh, you know, befuddled by this new environment we're in. Um, you know, I I, uh, I did take about a year off of releasing anything. And, and, it, and during that time, I was observing the buying habits of, uh, you know, the, the customers of the record store. and you know, it, more and more, it seemed like, uh, you know, working with catalog of an established band that's been around 25, 30 years. I mean, the whole, the whole need, need for advertising or any kind of sales pitch or anything that just goes out the door. I mean, you just, you know, for a band like Poison Idea, I just say Poison Idea. 
right. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the sales pitch and you're either you're on board with that and you're like yeah we'll take 30 or right. you know you don't get it and maybe maybe you're not my customer you know and that's <laughs> and that's fine um and uh you know that's you know choosing to work with you know the, the handful of bands that i still do that are all kind of fit that profile of having been together uh, you know having deep catalogs having you know re- you know been releasing music for 30 plus years um i can really get back into what i love the most about records and that's just the you know the packaging and the presentation and just all the attention to detail of really making a a, a quality presentation of whatever title we're doing or whatever title we're reissuing you know and um you know, and it was that the love of all those things which brought me here in the first place. So, um, so I'm I'm having a great time with the label now. It's probably my my favorite period. <laughs> you know, well, two, two things. I have I've I've one maybe two label questions, and and I wanted to dis, dis, discuss something that had I don't know whether it was motivated by your geographic change or something else. But the first being a lot of people don't know, and it's because there are very few of them, and that's the way you and I planned it from the outset. But you did a no for an answer release. And you did a no financial release, which was a new record. It was in 2009 or 10 or 11. I think it was 2011, right? And it caught me off guard. Um, you, you'll, it was sort of a spray to all fields move in terms of versus everything else that was on the catalog. But I was, I was honored to have you do it. Um, when you do a record where you do that few copies, we did 500 copies of that seven inch, right? Mm-hmm. Is that to does that do anything to help the survival of the label, label or is that just a passion project? Um, no, I mean, it certainly, it, it certainly helped uh, the label and it definitely helped the label at the time in the context of the label being attached to the store. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, part of my, uh, what I was trying to achieve with the store was, you know, I'm always like, I wanted to have the label that was putting out records I'd want to buy. And I want to, I wanted to have the record store that was, you know, like the record stores I, I grew up going to that I'd want to shop at, you know, and, um, you know, part, part of that was just sort of building the cachet and the mystique of that's the store that has the in, you know, the in-store artist appearances and they release these super limited uh, records by, you know, these, you know, key bands like the Meat Men, the Flesh Eaters, No For An Answer, mm-hmm. you know, um, so, so in that sense, I mean, it, we benefited greatly from it. I mean, as far as monetarily, I mean, it was definitely operation break even, you know, that's but again, that, that's sort of, I mean, that, that, that definitely came to me. I mean, when you, when, when we, when we worked on that project together, I mean, that was during, definitely during a period of sort of uh, reorientating and reinvention, reinventing for me as far, as far as a label. Um, and uh, it was great. I mean, those are some of my favorite releases, you know, these, they're a little, again, kind of counterintuitive. Like why'd you only make, 500 of that I and mean, you could have made i don't know 2000 3000 who knows um, people will send people will send artists that they're friends with on the social networks these pictures of their collections and people will send me something that has you know all the 14 15 however many records i've done at the time right and invariably they'll get to the workshed stuff and like something like voice box existence you know it's a crap record in terms of sales but it's in like six colors or something right right, right. and they'll have all those and they don't even know there's a third no for an answer record so you've got the great, well, you've got the great sought after secret item. I kind of love it. <laughs> right. I flash that cover. I flash that the cover of the TKO release to people, and they it gets a big what the fuck moment. What is that? Yeah, yeah that, no, see, I like I like that because I mean, you know, it's it's uh, 
you know, it's not so, it's not a release that I think most people who are fans of the label would would mm-hmm. would expect to happen. But I mean, you know, for me, I mean, one of one of the big influences on TKO uh, was the the what I what I learned observing, you know, the original run of Revelation Records mm-hmm. and had just the branding and how there was sort of you know just the way the way they. Uh, presented themselves, what Jordan has told me was inspired, inspired in a large part by uh, Danger House. Really? Just how it was a sort of cohesive brand, you know? And, um, I, I mean, as lame as that sounds, you know, as, from, from an anti-capitalist myself, but, but I mean, it's, it's just, just sort of, sort of a, a label, an underground label sort of establishing an identity. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that was a huge influence on me. So to get to do, uh, you know, uh, a release from a band who I, you know, I mean, I bought, uh, you know, your original EP when it came out and it was, you know, part, part of that original run of the rev stuff. Um, you know, that was definitely like a bucket list thing for me, for sure. Um, I was honored. You are no, you are no longer connected to the store and you are also living a couple States away or hundreds and hundreds of miles away. <laughs> and, uh, you are also into a new venture. You want to give me that quick, the quick story there? Sure, as, I mean, as quick as I can make it. It's, I want you to fly the, the Cascade flag high. So. Yeah, it's the, the next, I guess it's the next level in this madness. Okay. <laughs> or, or as I say, what I've been, tra- what all this other 25 years has been basically training me for this, this new venture. So um, in late 2014, uh, picked up the family, moved to Portland, Oregon, uh, and uh, partnered with a couple of people up here, up here to start uh, the Northwest's only uh, automated vinyl pressing plant. Um, there, there hadn't been one in the area since I think the early eighties. Um, and um, yeah, the, the, I guess the, the, the motivation behind that was, I mean, besides, besides, you know, wanting to move and leave California, which was a whole separate thing, what, what got us in that direction. Um, just conversations I had in the year or so leading up, uh, talking to other label people that I knew, um, and just hearing how difficult it was uh, for them to get vinyl pressed. You know, it was sort of in the wake of this whole record store day and this whole, this whole comeback. It, you know, all of a sudden, the majors were back in the plants and you know, these, uh, you know, independent DIY labels who are, you know, a big chunk of what kept vinyl going through, through the whole original vinyl downturn. Right. Um, all, ironically, all of a sudden, uh, you know, couldn't get their foot in the door. And I had been shielded from that because of my uh, personal connection to Pirates Press. So I was getting records made, you know, no problem because I, you know, I was getting preferential treatment from, from old friends who were well positioned. Right. But, um, you know, a lot, a lot of my colleagues didn't have that benefit. Um, and so uh, just in conversations with uh, Adam Gonzalez, who's an old friend of mine, used to, uh, I knew him from bands and zines that he ran on the East Coast. But he was now in Portland working as a, a vinyl mastering engineer, you know, operating a lathe and doing, you know, doing cuts for, for vinyl masters. You know, he and I would have these late night conversations. And, you know, finally one time I was like, man, did you ever think about, uh, starting a plant and up there he's like yeah I think about it all the time but but uh yeah I don't, I don't know how I'd get the money and I asked him how much money he thought it would take and he threw out a very uh, naively low sum 
And in my my, my bravado, I was like, oh, yeah, I, you know, I acted like I had it in my back pocket. I can raise that, no problem. And and so it sort of, that started this sort of game of chicken that he and I had that, mm-hmm. you know, eventually led to, you know, moving up here, uh, purchasing some vintage equipment from uh, New Jersey by way of Canada. Um, and, you know, As one does, you know. Sure, yeah, I mean, that's after looking in Jamaica, uh, Africa, you know, literally a worldwide search, um, you know, just, just having all, all these things sort of come together in a really kind of insane way. I mean, I still, I still can't believe that, it, that any of this worked because it really shouldn't have. It sounds like a Herculean endeavor. I know a little bit more behind the curtain about record pressing plants than, than some, not as an artist, but as a, you know, working the midnight shift, sweating my ass off, you know, actually pressing records and i imagine and those i actually found the atmosphere terrifying and exhausting so the idea that you would say hey i want to make one of those makes me think you're a crazy person that i and i should be glad you live so far away oh without a doubt yeah without a doubt no it's it's uh like i said anybody with any sense would stay far away but um you know there's some of us who just we don't this is this is what we do this is what we love and you know my I, i don't my great skill is that is is in coming up with ideas and getting people, other people with talent to get excited about these ideas, you know, and and, give give me some drill down. Tell me, tell me, you know, number of machines in a good year, how much, how much you're getting done, how fast is it growing? Has pandemic been dangerous to it? Uh, Just, you know, share with us the true story of uh, manifesting your passion up there. Well, I mean, it's just, it's, it's been crazy. Um, the, the landscape in the five years that I've been actively, you know, running a vinyl pressing operation, the, the landscape has come nowhere near to settling at all. Yeah. All, all these different, all these different conditions and good and bad things popping up. I mean, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, 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 it's been crazy, but I love it. I mean, I probably never worked this hard in my life. I've, and I've never been, uh, you know, as professionally fulfilled, you know, I mean, it's, uh, nice. like I said, I mean, I, re- I really do feel, I'm really quite fortunate. I feel, I feel like I've spent, you know, again, better part of the last 20 years training for this. Um, I mean, as, as far as the details, uh, so right now we are in possession of, uh, let's see, seven machines, Okay. six of them are running. Um, so that's, uh, that's five lines, four lines dedicated to standard weight vinyl, one line dedicated to 180 gram vinyl, and then, uh, the newest machine, uh, which is a, a dual cavity seven inch machine. So it's, it's making two seven inch records per cycle. You've got a seven inch um, machine up and running? Yeah, finally. Yeah. When took, I came sniffing around TKO during the genesis of a Shiner's Club, that was not true. Now we, uh, we, we got a machine and it took close to four years to track down all the different parts and, and yeah. you know, get it up and running. I mean, yeah, it was, it's crazy. It's, it's, uh, it's this model, uh, the SMT 3600, which is, uh, dates from sort of the peak of, um, Motown and, and jukebox 45s. Okay. And it was definitely designed to be a high output, high capacity machine for 45s. I mean, j- just the story of that, machine alone is, is crazy I, I don't know how much we talk about it but um it's uh the 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 3600 that we have uh has a long story history uh we got it out of florida where originally it had belonged to uh the reggae producer joe gibbs All right. 
um, who I don't know how much you're, you're into reggae, but he, he uh, I mean, one of the big songs he produced was uh, uh, Blood and Fire by 90 The Observer. That's a, you know, a reggae staple. And he's, you know, done many, many other right, ones. Boasts uh, far more varied tastes than I am, uh, sir. Wow. But, you know, thank you for exposing that. No, I mean, no, that, just, that, well, that all goes back to the whole, again, the whole punk uh, traditionalist thing, you know, uh, you know, acolytes of the Clash and Stiff Little Fingers, I mean, having, having a knowledge of reggae is required. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you know, so, Absolutely. so, um, but, uh, but, the, but this machine was owned by Joe Gibbs, who uh, I, I think supposedly was on, had to leave the country uh, because the FBI were after him for bootlegging. Uh, Charlie Pride Records, and so Joe Gibbs <laughs> sold it to uh, another reggae great, uh, Cox and Dodd, who's the founder of Studio One. I mean, he's definitely. I've said if if there was a Mount Rushmore of reggae, he'd be on it. You know, so and then Cox and Dodd, uh, you know, ran ran that at his plant out of Florida until he passed away. Um, so, you know, we're in possession of this record that's made you know millions of these classic reggae and soul fantastic yeah it's it's uh it's really kind of a neat legacy you know um and uh, just some reggae vinyl collectors that i've told what told the history of the machine they're just their jaws are on the floor like can i come by can i touch it you know um so that's i mean that's that's the neat part of this is that you know all this all this old gear and all these old engineers we have to talk to i mean we're really you know for, for a music lover who's really into the the deep nerd shit. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this has been a delight, you know. I, I'm not dead. I have practical questions for you. Sure. Um, you come from a very specific background. How much are you able to service the world that you come from with the plant? In other words, how much how much of the records you end up pressing? Not the label, the record pressing plant. Do you end up doing dealing with people whose music you love or with labels who you admire? And how much of it is a business is a business? Um, I I would say. A majority of we, I mean, we're really fortunate. The majority of it is, um, you know, stuff that I'm, if I'm not already a fan, mm-hmm. I at least feel uh, a kinship to. Um, you know, we we deal with overwhelmingly, uh, you know, independent artists. Uh, we, we maybe do one or two major label titles a year, and uh, and even those ones that we do are they're usually because of a personal cl- connection that comes from the underground. Okay. You know, um, but no, we've, we've been very, very fortunate. I mean, there really hasn't been, uh, you know, that much stuff that, you know, made me question my morals, <laughs> you know, um, thankfully, uh, we, we've, you know, we've managed to stay away from that. I mean, it does mean we have to hustle a lot harder. We're doing like a whole lot more of smaller jobs, you know, um, but, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, my connections and, 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 you know, growing up in, in punk and hardcore, uh, really aided me and not just having a Rolodex of people to call up and go, Hey, guess what? I'm pressing, I'm pressing records now, but just in, and how to, uh, you know, talk to the customers. I mean, we can, re- we can relate to the customer because we've been in the customer's shoes, you know, right. myself. And I mean, ev- everybody in the building here, uh, all of us are new to plastics manufacturing, Okay, but also all of us have been doing music things music side for been coming at it from a different angle for Um, sure whether band label both you know you know what have you um you and i have gone long which i'm kind of proud of for the first time in weeks i've just had a conversation no no no, 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 no. i still i still have a a point i want to bring up with you sure but i was going to say it's always interesting 
I don't know if you've seen, I did an interview with Alexia Exarchos recently. She's a, she's an epidemiologist and I was lucky enough to know someone in that field during quarantine. Right. Um, that's okay. Yeah. That's probably well, the one episode I haven't seen, but well, yeah, I, I, what I, where I'm tying this in is I should have let that one go longer. Talk about an opportunity. We're worrying about the uh, length of the interview was just dumb. Oh, yeah. for sure. That's probably exactly who you want to get more info from. It's a great, it's a great episode. And I should have, I should have just talked and talked and talked. Um, have her back for a part two. <laughs> I, I, almost everybody, I hope I'm doing this for a long time, and almost everybody I've, I've interviewed, I really hope I do a second and a third with, you know, current company included. Um, my you. pragmatic question for you was, you know, vinyl had a resurgence. Vinyl came back. It shocks what they would call, you know, normcore or the general public that it's so popular and that it's been so in demand, you know, in the last decade. Record Store Day had a big thing to do with that big part to do with that you're somebody who has witnessed several swings in terms of demand in the music market you worry about long-term sustainability you know what if if the world swings away from vinyl again i I mean i don't that's not what i'm worried about i'm i'm more worried about just the the international situation and what that might do to international trade and in my supply chain um go go with that Totally. Yeah, because yeah, right. I mean, right now, uh, you know, all of our uh, PVC compound comes from Thailand, um, and uh, so I mean, it's really that's that's really what I find myself worrying about. It's more just uh, access to the materials. We're, I mean, we've just seen the demand go up and up and up, and, and just it's just continuing. I mean, it's uh, you know, there's been there's been a few uh, you know reports of oh yeah, the vinyl boom's over. It's you know, it's dead mm-hmm. or whatever. And, and then, you know, the numbers keep just busting through the ceiling, you know? So, um, I, you know, I think that, uh, you know, the, the format's back, it's reestablished. It's, you know, it's one thing that's important to point out is that you, you don't want to look at it as it's not mass media. This is a, this is a specialty piece now. Absolutely. Um, and it's not, you know, it's, Gone are the days where, you know, I'm sure you remember where you could go in and get, get an LP for a new LP for under $10. I mean, you've now got, it's a premium product. Um, you know, you've got people willing to come in and pay $35, $45 for, uh, you know, a new record. Good Lord. Um, so, which, yeah, it seems crazy to me. But, um, you know, again, going back to the, the days of the record store, I mean, our, 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 in Fountain Valley, I, m- I remember when we started having a hard time finding uh, used copies of all like the dad rock stuff, like the Eagles and mm-hmm. et cetera, and um, all the stuff that you just took for granted that you thought you'd always be able to find. And so one time as an experiment, I'm like, okay, I'm going to wholesale and purchase a new copy of Hotel California. And let's just see what happens. And, you know, it arrived and I, and I had to, with my markup, I had to put it out like for close to $40. It didn't stay in the store. It didn't, it didn't last 24 hours. It was gone. And so at that point, uh, did I lose audio on you? Um, oh, I'm, you can hear me. Okay. Yeah. yeah so at that yeah, point I'm, it was sort of I'm, like, who, I'm who am I to, up your story, sir? well, just who, who, who am I to question if, if people are, if that's what they're willing to pay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, who are we to argue? And then the question becomes, okay, so now it's on us to, if we've got, if we're fortunate enough to be dealing in a format where people are willing to pay this, you know, premium price, it's on us to deliver quality. 
Right. That means no slouching, no bullshit packaging. It's got to look good. It's got to sound good. You know, you don't, you don't, the last thing that you want to kill this vinyl trend, start having people pay 40 bucks for bullshit. Okay. That'll end it really quickly. <laughs> you know, I like that. Um, well, so, and, and I mean, that's, that's the tack we take with our, you know, our customers and with on the pressing side with the, the, you know, the service that we offer is we, we really try to model ourselves after, you know, the audiophile plants of the seventies where it's, all about the quality because we, we can't be the biggest, we can't be the cheapest. I mean, you know, we've got seven presses. Uh, there's other presses out there that have like 50, you know, 30, 50 presses. I mean, we're completely dwarfed on an, an industrial scale. Um, but, uh, you know, where we can compete is the quality. Um, Standing. And uh, so, yeah, that's really, I mean, it's kind of, that's, that's our philosophy really with, uh, you know, what, what we try to offer to the people we, we work with, you know. Um, I take that as my out, sir. Okay. No, and I'm going to tell you why. We ain't the biggest, we're the best. And you're damn straight. You know, I, I've got to tell you, I uh, was blown away when, when I heard you were doing this. Um, I was not jaded because you, 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 you're just, you're somebody who actualizes their, their ambitions. So I didn't, I wasn't skeptical that it would succeed, but I was like, how is this fucker going to pull this off? <laughs> and I'm glad we had an opportunity to sit down today and I could find out a little more of the truth about that. I wish you nothing but the best in it. Um, anytime you want to rattle your sword about something that's going on in music, please reach out and we'll find time on the show. Oh, I'd love to. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of, I mean, all sorts of directions we could spiral off and, you know, talking about the political climate up here in the Pacific Northwest, uh, talking about how, uh, <laughs> how, 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 how building a factory with my friends and, and trying to, you know, industrially manufacture, uh, this product has pushed me so far to the left politically that, that I, that I never, never would have expected oh, it. Now you're just, see, now you're you talking know, my language. You just, yeah, it, it's, you just cemented Mark Rainey episode two, sir. <laughs> Yes. All right. We'll count on it, man. I, 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 anytime you, anytime you want, I, I can, I can blather on about this stuff for hours and hours. Uh, All right. Well, thank you so much, Mark. I'm going to go ahead and fill record. And uh, that was Mark Rainey, Cascade Record Pressing. Thanks, Dan. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is, is a rock and roll city for sure. Yeah! Down! Yeah! The wrath of the buzzer. WMMS. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles. The wrath of the buzzard. P-R-O-H files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts.